Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental and social justice news from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. The need for data retention has been has been thoroughly oversold. Clearly, anyone who is you know, a nefarious person, a, a criminal or a terrorist or what have you, they will be, you know, smart enough to be using tools that do not, uh, that are not hoovered up as part of, of data retention. So it's not going to achieve its primary purpose of, of catching those people. What the effect is, is that it will build up a huge pool of data. So the, the data retention scheme is, is not just about retaining data, it's about creating it. It's new data sets about us. almost become ubiquitous that states are, are spying not in the sort of clandestine Cold War way on, on foreign intelligence agencies and people that they think might be, you know, might be involved in espionage, but on entire civilian populations. The federal government's new data retention laws came into effect on the 13th of October. With this vast surveillance regime coming into place, we ask, what risk does it pose to activism? And what will be its effects on social movements and democratic life more broadly? Scott Ludlam is the Greens Senator for Western Australia, and he's been campaigning against the introduction of these laws. Having argued against this legislation on the floor of the Senate, Scott knows the ins and outs of what this new law will entail. Well, what they're about is compelling uh, internet service providers, so phone companies and um companies that provide you with data for your internet connection, it compels them to keep uh, in a much more consistent way wider data sets and larger amounts of information on their users. So whether you're accessing the internet from a desktop computer at home or at work or whether you're accessing it on the phone, they'll be, what they're really after, I think, the way that they're putting it is, is much more stringent. Um, consistency across the range of all the telecommunications providers as to what's kept. So the government was very keen at the outset to emphasise that it's not um, the actual call, but it's all the information that relates to the call. And it's not the content of the email, it's all the information that relates to the email. Um, When it comes to communications on mobile telephones, it actually expands to to quite a lot of information, um, things like your location at the time when you make the call, for example. So it's effectively a way of of, uh, allowing agencies to map your social network, who you're in contact with, when you're in contact with them, how frequently, where you were when you contact them. Um, Your your social network and your location, I suppose, and your sort of patterns of communication are, are what is what the providers will um, henceforth be forced to collect for a period of two years. It's a really large swathe of information that is now mandated to be collected. And as you said, the government has been at pains to emphasise that it's not the so-called content of the of the communication. So in the case of a phone call, it's not a literal recording of the phone call itself, but it's the time of the call 
it's who the call was made to and it's the location of the of the call as well. What could be done with this data? What what worries you about about what could be done with this data? I think what worries me principally is it's kind of twofold. So firstly, if the material is brought into existence, it creates that security risk and people who do data security for a living have said this creates a bit of a honeypot. It creates this big new pools of material about people's private information that wasn't being kept beforehand and that opens it up to hacking and malicious use. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's official uses and access by various agencies. The thresholds are very low for access. You don't have to prove that people are involved or suspected of committing really serious criminal activity. You don't need to go and get a warrant so there's no no judicial oversight. Uh, We tried to get what are called gravity of conduct offences into the legislation so that um, agencies would need to be chasing serious criminal activity before they could access this material in a warrantless way. That amendment was knocked back. So what it's allowing is agencies from ASIO on down to um, to harvest very large quantities of this stuff. On its own, in, an individual call record doesn't tell you very much. If you have 10,000 mm-hmm. call records and all the other information that goes um, along with that, uh, then you can actually paint a really intimate portrait of somebody's life unless they're actively taking countermeasures to try and avoid that material being collected in the first place. And none of it's being accessed with a warrant. Uh, nobody knows when their material is being accessed. And that, to me, opens up all sorts of possibilities of, of privacy violations on a whole different scale. And there's been a lot of talk about the logistics of, of this storage both how it's going to be stored, where this metadata is going to be stored by telcos and ISPs, and the ability of ISPs and telcos to keep this data private. Well, obviously, it's not going to be private from ASIO, from the Federal Police and from other agencies, but you've mentioned the risks of things like uh, hacking and, and privacy breaches. Yeah, well, those, those are the, the principal concerns that in, industry put to us, that you're forcing industry to keep material that it didn't really want. The government's putting up $130 million to help pay for it, which I think is acknowledged to be less than half of what it's actually going to cost. So some service providers were saying, not on their own behalf, but what they thought would happen would be that that would effectively chase business offshore to cheap cloud hosting providers that might not you know, might not protect people's private information in the, the manner in which they would, would have an expectation. So it's it's really it's an obligation that was that was undue, it was unnecessary, it was unwanted, it's expensive and all through the debate nobody was able to provide us with any evidence that keeping people's data in such an indiscriminate way would help solve crime because of course it's untargeted. Nobody I shouldn't say nobody, very few people have a serious concern with discriminate and targeted, lawful, warranted surveillance in a way that's why we empower some of these agencies with the powers that they have. It's more when you you expand that drift net to cover the entire population of non-suspects that you start to have to ask, well, what's this actually for? How's this going to help anybody? Are we looking at entering an age of mass surveillance that we haven't seen before? Of course, Google and Apple have been hoovering up large amounts of metadata through our smartphone usage for quite a while now, but this government-mandated metadata retention 
Should we be worried about this from a civil liberties perspective? We should be worried about it from a boiling frog perspective. This has been going on for decades, and the data retention scheme is, is a big lunge. It's a big incremental lunge on top of a superstructure that's been in place for a really long time. Um, the surveillance networks were set up by the US, the UK and its allies, including Australia in the post-war years, have been gradually expanding in reach and scope for a very long period of time. It wasn't until the release of the massive documentation by Edward Snowden to Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and others that we were able to get a good look at the actual scope and, and sort of blow away some of the conspiracy theories that turned out not to be theories at all, that large-scale indiscriminate um, collection of, of people's private information, not just the metadata but everything, the full take, has been underway for a period of time and the technology exists now uh, as, as the, the Snowden documents attest. To be able to reach into somebody's computer in real time and take control of that device, switch cameras on and off remotely, um, record conversations, uh, and, and do all of this without the knowledge of the user. And it's being done. It's been done uh, in an extraordinarily indiscriminate way. It's being led by the United States in terms of our alliances. But obviously, uh, the, the technology is in use by authoritarian regimes all over the world, from from China to those in the Middle East who Western companies uh, contract to, um, it's, it's almost become ubiquitous that states are, are spying, not in the sort of clandestine Cold War way on, on foreign intelligence agencies and people that they think might be, you know, might be involved in espionage, but on entire civilian populations. And that's brought to bear most brutally in places like um, you know, like Libya or like China, where people can disappear if they have an unpopular opinion. But I think it was a shock to many to see how pervasively it has been deployed in democracies. That's the value of having whistleblowers like Edward Snowden or publishers like Julian Assange who are prepared to take, you know, massive risks with their own liberty uh, and their own lives in order to bring this material to light. Bringing it back home... Should people involved in activism and especially environmental activism be worried about this uh, indiscriminate uh, data surveillance that is going on? I'm thinking, I guess, especially people who are involved in forms of civil disobedience and activism that is not legally sanctioned. I think we definitely should. And whether you're, you know, there are a lot of forms of civil disobedience that don't necessarily involve breaking the law, but if you want to know how the other side thinks, just go and have a read of that ridiculous paper by Michael Keenan that they're proposing to put into all schools um, about the way that the definition of, of activism and forest campaigner in, in the instance of Karen was conflated with terrorism and with being a security risk. And that blurring has been underway for some time. Our forest campaigners um, around this country, you know, most recently, notoriously in Victoria and in New South Wales at the Laird Camp, have been subject uh, to infiltration by by contractors, subcontractors, by state policing agencies, um, not necessarily by ASIO, whose attention is elsewhere, but if you're involved in anti-militarism work, if you're involved in contemplating uh, non-violent direct action at a coal-fired power station or what might be considered critical infrastructure like a coal port, then you'd be a bit naive to imagine that the police and security services aren't interested in, in what you're doing. 
and so it does it does range from infiltration um, on down. What I think these mass surveillance tools allow is it makes it a lot cheaper to spy on a much larger number of people, and it effectively automates some elements of the process that you can just grab people's call and internet records, map their movements around the landscape, but perhaps more importantly, uh, map their social networks, figure out who they're talking to, who are the key people in a particular campaign network uh, who might then be subjected to more invasive um, uh, or overt forms of surveillance. I know people involved in the Occupy movement um, in Melbourne were quite aggressively surveilled and intimidated. So what these surveillance tools do is they don't necessarily expand the powers available to agencies, but they expand the amount of material that is available um, that, that can then be uh, accessed, again, on a completely warrantless basis without any oversight whatsoever by these agencies. You never know that it's happening. You've got no recourse. There's nobody that you can appeal to. There's no ombudsman for this kind of behaviour. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why we've been encouraging uh, campaign groups around the country to skill up and get digitally literate, um, hold a crypto party, invite people who know how these tools work to teach basic data hygiene and security culture. Um, there are ways that we can protect ourselves a little bit better. We should, we should get better at using them. Green Senator for Western Australia, Scott Ludlam. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental and social justice news on the Community Radio Network. We're discussing the federal government's new data retention laws and asking what will be its effects on activism and democratic life more broadly. My name is Tom Solston. Uh, I'm a principal consultant at ThoughtWorks. Um, ThoughtWorks is a software delivery consultancy, so we spend most of our time helping companies write, you know, mobile phone apps and websites and internal software. Um, but our purpose is, is not to do that. Our purpose is not to make money. Our purpose is to use software to bring about social change in the world and to use the sort of humanizing power of, of uh, technology to bring around a, a more just society. That is our purpose. And so some of, some of my work in, in that area is around um, digital privacy and communication and what, what that means for us. Now, with the recently introduced data retention laws, there's now a lot more interest in digital security and privacy. ThoughtWorks has been involved in co-sponsoring some crypto parties recently. Can you give us a bit of a introduction to crypto parties and, and what that whole movement is about? Yeah, so uh, crypto parties, uh, the idea came from uh, an Australian journalist called Asher Wolf, and uh, the idea is that people who uh, know they, they need some extra uh, strength in their knowledge of privacy tools um, for their computer and their phone hang out with some people who know about technology and know about those tools, and we drink some beer, we eat some pizza, we, we talk about those things, and maybe we set some of them up and, and get them running. So it's a, a sort of a, a light-hearted way of bringing together um, technologists and people from other spheres to to share really fundamental tools that that we all need. And some of your events have attracted some really large crowds of people. Uh, you ran one earlier this year in in Melbourne. Can you tell us about that event? 
Yeah, so we had oh about a hundred and hundred and something people in uh, in our office in Melbourne. Um, we had uh, Senator Scott Ludlam as a special guest speaker, along with Lizzie O'Shea um, and some other speakers. Um, and we we took a, a fairly sizable crowd through a whole range of privacy tools, and we had a sort of a wide ranging discussion on on you know what are the pros and cons, what sort of attacks, what sort of privacy invasions do which sorts of tool protect you against and, and which ones do they, you know, just as importantly, which ones do they not protect you against? So we had a huge number of people and it was a it was a great night. And I would assume that not everyone in the room was necessarily a journalist or a lawyer or a um an activist as such. Why is it important that everyone should be interested in digital privacy or, or maybe to sort of phrase it a bit differently? Why is privacy not just an individual issue? Yeah, I, I think there's sort of, uh, sort of privacy and communications in sort of the digital world is sort of at the nexus of a whole load of, of, sort of interlocking issues. Um, one of the things that sort of became apparent during the Edward Snowden revelations of two years ago was that the the five eyes countries that is Australia, New Zealand, the US, uh, the UK, and Canada? Those countries are effectively hoovering up the the entire world's internet traffic, storing it, and then making it searchable, which is uh, an interesting thing to do um, because what that enables intelligence services in those countries to do is look up a person and effectively say, tell, tell me everything they've done on the internet in the last period of time. And the way that we live our lives now is that effectively that means tell me everything this person has done. Um, now that obviously has a, a hugely chilling effect on what a person would choose to do on the internet. Um, you know, it's almost like a sort of, a, a sort of Bentham's panopticon uh, sort of affair where as an individual, your communications are, you know, your, if you, communications you thought were private are no longer private, you will change the way that you, you talk. Um, and the, the internet being not only the, the communications tool of choice for almost everything now, is also the political commons of our times. And so when everyone is forced to self-censor, we're not able to have a social discourse that allows us to grow society, allows us to make progressive changes. And so this is why this is important for everyday people, because everyone, you know, even if you're not a, you know, an activist or a journalist or a lawyer, any of those people with very specific special privacy needs, everyone has an interest in being part of a society that can, can grow and change. Now, all of the things that we, we take for granted now, like, um, you know, gay rights or, or universal suffrage, those those came about not not out of luck or out of, sort of the beneficence of, of, of power holders in society. Those came about because of organizing uh, political change and dissidence within society and communication and private communication is a part of being able to do that. So everyone has a stake in this. We all communicate. We all use the Internet. And we all have an interest in society growing. What are the, some of the uh, practical steps that individuals can take to protect their own privacy and security then? Can you maybe give our listeners a bit of a 101 of what what they should be doing? What are some of the the really easy steps that anyone can do? Yeah, I I think there's um, a couple of things I would preface this with, which is to say that, you know, the NSA and its allies have an enormous budget and they have an enormous amount of power. So it's very hard for a person to make themselves sort of impenetrable against the the forces of, of of the security services. 
But what we can do is make it harder for those security services to surveil us en masse um, uh, sort of willy-nilly without really caring about who we are and just taking everything because they can. So there are things that we can do. I think in, in Australia, particularly uh, with data retention having just come up, um, VPNs are a really easy way of working around data retention legislation. So your internet uh, traffic, the things that you're doing on the internet, get encrypted, made unreadable to the telcos, and then emerge in another country before they're, they're sent out onto the internet. So that makes it very hard for those things to be retained as part of the data retention regime. And I think another thing that we're talking about a lot is um, mobile phones. Everyone you know, carries their mobile with them, and we use them for just about everything. An really easy thing you can do with your mobile is to start using uh, chat programs rather than SMSs. So there are a huge range of uh, encrypted, secure uh, chat programs, things like iMessage on, uh, on the Apple iPhone um, or Text Secure on Android. These things allow you to uh, send text messages or take the equivalent of text messages between you and your friends and your colleagues without um, without those generating metadata records and without the contents of those messages being readable. I think there are a couple of things that are worth drawing a distinction between data retention in Australia and mass surveillance by the Five Eyes Intelligence Services. A lot of so the, the tools that we talk about, things like VPNs, will protect you against data retention, but they won't protect you against Five Eyes spying. So one of the things that I talk about so when we hold crypto parties is to ask people to think about who's trying to get their data and how might they go about that and use that to, to determine what tools you should be using to protect yourself. So be aware that it's a very complicated situation and that there are lots of actors in the market trying to, to uh, invade your privacy. Um, there is no one easy solution, sadly. Now, it's been argued, it's argued by the government that we, uh, that we shouldn't be worried about these laws and that they're, that they're quite necessary to, to fight crime. Uh, there was an article that was published uh, just this week um, online by someone uh, who was involved in the implementation uh, of the data retention regimes with a telco telling us that actually, look, the information's pretty useless and so we shouldn't be worried about it from that perspective. I was wondering if you could debunk some of the claims which are made about uh, the need for this data retention. Yeah, absolutely. So, the, the the need for data retention has been has been thoroughly oversold. Um, clearly, anyone who is you know a nefarious person, a, a criminal or a terrorist or what have you, they will be you know smart enough to be using tools that do not uh, that are not hoovered up as part of of data retention. So, it's not going to achieve its primary purpose of of catching those people. What the effect is, is that it will build up a huge pool of data. So the, the data retention scheme is, is not just about retaining data, it's about creating it. A lot of the, the, the so-called metadata that telcos are now required to keep is not things that they have any interest in holding on to, to you know, run their business or to do billing or anything like that. It's new data sets about us. So as an example, um, one of the fields in uh, the data set that telcos are required to retain is location. And that's pretty benign if you're talking about you know, someone's uh, landline phone or their, their DSL internet connection. 
But when you think about their mobile, what you're effectively saying when you want to retain someone's location is you want to know where that person has been at every point in the last two years. Now, that has a, an obvious chilling effect because you can then mine that data. So um, one thing that we witnessed um, last year was during protests in Turkey, um, protesters would, would sort of gather in the, sort of the, uh, the squares of Istanbul and, and protest, as is, as is their legal right, um, and they would be sent messages uh, over SMS by the from the telco saying, you know, you're taking part in a, an unsanctioned protest. Go home now. We know who you are. And, and that has a, an obvious chilling effect because, you know, telcos and, and intelligence services are now able to use your location data over a period of time and mesh that with everyone else's location data and work out who you've been hanging around with, who you've been talking to. Um, and so those sorts of things I think are particularly interesting, especially around protests, where you know you you you, you have a right to protest, right? That's part of, of engaging in the democratic process. And if that uh, if that right is chilled by you know your attendance being recorded and stored at least for two years, and it seems quite likely that data retention will you know be extended before those two years is up, but at least for two years your attendance is, is recorded alongside that of everyone else who is attended. It becomes fairly straightforward for um, for people who, who wish to um, smear you in the future to, to go back in time and say, hey, you're at this place with these people, they're really bad people, and therefore you agree with them. And, and I think that has a, a terrifying effect on our ability to function as a democracy. Tom Solston from ThoughtWorks. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. We've been speaking to Scott Ludlam and Tom Solston about the federal government's new data retention laws and the threat this poses to campaigns for social and environmental justice. We've also heard music from Yacht with Party at the NSA and Radio Void by Chris and Cosy. We also heard an excerpt from Phantom Terrains, a sound art experiment sonifying Wi-Fi signals by Frank Swain and Daniel Jones. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And you can add that to the swag of metadata information being collected. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.